I forgot to uh, lift up in prayer, as I will here in a minute, um, Elroy's boy, Robin, who is in Mayo Clinic right now waiting a transplant heart. Um, it takes about two weeks. He's at the very top of the list. And so we are praying that um, a heart would be found. It would be the perfect heart. And what's making it complicated is they need a, a larger heart than he has. And so, uh, unfortunately, in order to get a heart, that means someone must pass. But uh, in, sovereign, in our sovereign God's will, I pray that he would bring forth a heart for Robin's so that he could continue to live his life when one has passed on. Take your Bibles and please turn with me to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. And I will be reading verses 8 through 14. 8 through 14. Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 14. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was, a, there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those whom He is pleased. Heavenly Father, we come before Your Word. We come under the authority of Your Word. We thank You, Father, that You are the Word. And we pray, Father God, as we study Your Word this morning, that it would resonate in our hearts, build up our faith, encourage us, Father. Remind us so that we may rejoice every day of the foretelling of, your, of the Savior coming and that You actually came and You will come again. And for that, Father, it gives us great joy. Now, before we get into our sermon, Lord, and before the message that you've given me, I lift up Robin in the name of Jesus. And in the power of the Holy Spirit, Father, I pray that you would move in a way that would find this heart that is needed for Robin. And I pray that the examination of the heart would meet the standards and that, Father, they would quicken to get the heart to Robin and that Robin would have this surgery it would be successful so we could continue to live his life for you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, that was quite a few verses that I read there. And as Jason and Allie wonderfully um, presented this morning, that we are speaking of the advent of joy. And I want you to refocus where we were reading and go to verse 11. For this will be the core verse from which I preach this morning. And in verse 11 it says, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. I'm sorry, verse 10. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. So today's message is one of joy. And over 2,000 years ago, shepherds tending their flocks 
were visited by this angel of the Lord and announced the greatest news this world had ever heard. And although it was told to just a few, this good news would change the world forever and call us to rejoice every day of our life in Him. Now, when we look at the word joy, used by Luke here specifically, it means to have a cause and an occasion for joy. It's an action. It's a cause to have great joy. And this morning within this text, I would like to highlight four reasons why this is good news of great joy that the Lord provides in His text that the shepherds heard on that night and yet that they proclaimed once they met the baby Jesus. And the first reason that we are to rejoice and have this occasion for joy is because the promise of the Messiah had been fulfilled. The promise of the Messiah had been fulfilled. You know, since the first letter of the first five books written by Moses in the Old Testament, Jews were waiting for the promise of a Savior. They were waiting for the promise of a Messiah, the Mashiach. And in Genesis 3.15, we see it very early on in Scripture, the foretelling of this Messiah. And in Genesis 3.15 it says, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers, and he will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. The very first pronouncement of the coming Messiah. He would come. He would redeem. He would redeem that which was lost to sin and crush the enemy of God. And so from this description, the Jews seen the Messiah who would be in the power over Satan and crush him and all of his works. Additionally, in Genesis, Moses writes that the Savior would come through the line of Abraham. We find this in Genesis 12 too. This would later be reaffirmed with Isaac in Genesis 17, 19, and Jacob in Genesis 28, 14. He continued this promise through their lineage. The prophetic promises also said that the Messiah would come from the tribe of Judah. We see that in Genesis 49.10. And that he would be a ruler and a leader. And most importantly, he would be in the lineage of David. Very important. For the kingdom would be restored that had been lost. Now there are Hundreds of prophetic utterings in the Old Testament to foretell of the coming Messiah, the promised Messiah. I just don't have time to list them all, nor would you want me to. But you can certainly do that study on your own. And it's fascinating how often the Old Testament speaks of the promise of the coming of the Messiah. And this is why the Jews longed for this return of the Messiah. They were anticipating Him. 
They longed for him. They wanted him to come now. And there were three reasons why, at the time of Jesus' birth, that the Jews really wanted the return of the Messiah. And the first one was, is they were under Roman occupation. And the dominion of their government and the heavy laden taxes that they put on their people and the puppet governments that they installed like King Herod. And all of this restricted them greatly in who they are as a people. And they wanted the return of the kingdom. They wanted the return of the king. They wanted to be Israel again. They wanted the prosperity. They wanted the kingdom. They wanted their own land that they enjoyed up until Solomon and then the kingdom divided and then eventually was lost. They wanted it to come back and the promises of a Messiah promised that. And so that's how they viewed that. But even worse, they longed for the return of the kingdom because of the spiritual and religious oppression that they faced. Now, they were authorized to practice their faith in a certain extent in order to keep peace. That's how the Roman government worked. They would come in, they would establish rule, they would establish a government, they would establish their laws, but they would allow certain privileges in order to maintain peace, especially with the Jews, who were very, very dedicated and would violently act out in any restriction. Yet, they didn't have the full capability of implementing their law. You see, the Jewish law was more than just basis for their temple worship. It was their jurisprudence. It was their law. It was their government. And it had been taken away from them and restricted. And so these three reasons is why they longed for the Messiah to come. And they couldn't wait for the return of the Messiah. And I can understand that. If it, I mean, obviously in our country today, we have the privilege of freedom. We have the Constitution that guarantees those freedoms. But imagine if we were conquered and those freedoms were removed and we were given a cursory worship, but yet they installed a heavy laden upon us. We too would be looking for deliverance. We too would be looking for a Messiah. And you know what? We were, because we've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. And the Messiah that we look for is the one that would redeem us, the one that would forgive us of our sins and unrighteousness, the one that would reconcile us unto the Father. And this is the good news. Now, this promise was just not for the Jews. This promise was for all people. As it says in verse 10, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. That's all inclusive. Jews and Gentiles. Therefore, we all need a Savior. And God's Word promises that to us. And when Jesus was born, that promise was fulfilled. Listen to Matthew chapter 1. Verses 18 through, 20, 18 through 23. 
Now the birth of Jesus took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, yet an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. The promise had been fulfilled upon the birth of Jesus Christ, of a Messiah, a Savior who would come and save us from our sins and redeem us and reconcile us to the Father. Now secondly, what we see here in Luke chapter 2, in verse 10, something that we also have a great cause to be joyful, is that it brought good news, this good news to all people, just not the Jews, but to all people. Now the shepherds were Israelites, and as I spoke earlier, they were all awaiting for the Messiah. But this news was just not for them. It was for you and me as well. In fact, if you just turn your page and go to Luke chapter 2, verses 29 to 32, we read this. Lord, now you, now, now, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light of revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory to your people Israel. Now, these words were spoken by Simeon, who was waiting for the consolation of Israel, which means the comfort of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And when he went into the temple, he picked up the baby Jesus, and he lifted him up, and he spoke those prophetic words. And he introduced Jesus to the whole world. And so this great news that we're talking about here was just not the Messiah for the Jews, but it was the fulfillment of prophecy for the Gentiles as well. Now I find it fascinating that the angel of the Lord and the Holy Spirit, speaking through Simeon, would pronounce that the good news of the Messiah was just not for Israel, but for the whole world. By and large, the Jews missed this. Because he didn't come as they thought he would come, to redeem Israel, to make the kingdom again. And so they negated the message because he wasn't coming in the way they expected him to and they hoped him to. And they missed every application that Jesus was saying as it applied to a new kingdom. Even the disciples missed this. You recall earlier in Luke, two disciples on the way to Emmaus said to Jesus, whom they did not know at the time until Jesus revealed himself to them, but they said this, but we hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. They were talking about Jesus. They were talking about his crucifixion. And they were saying to Jesus, whom they did not know it was Jesus, you, you have not heard, you did not know what was going on in Jerusalem. They, they sacrificed our Lord. And we had hoped 
that he was the one to redeem Israel. You see, even they had that concept that the reestablishment of the kingdom was there. They missed it until the resurrection of Christ. And it was after the resurrection and the ascension of Christ that this come, become a hard reality that it was for the Gentiles as well. In fact, we see this in Acts chapter 9, verse 15, where the Lord said to them, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. You know who received that message? Ananias did. And he received that message when he was commanded by an angel to go and pray for Saul because he was persecuting the church. Well, we know Saul to be Paul. And it was Paul who was going to bring the message of salvation to the Gentiles as well. In fact, we also see it in Acts chapter 10 with Peter. Remember, Peter was put into a trance while he sat on top of a roof. And the Lord opened up a sheet as if it came from heaven, and he started sending down animals, and he said, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter said, I will not touch an unclean thing. And God did that three times. And on the third time, he said, do not call that which I create unclean. And that's when Peter knew that the gospel was as much for the Gentiles as it was for the Jews. And so here's the point. God desires all to be saved. God desires to reconcile all who have been born into sin. God desires to have an intimate relationship with His creation. You know, on Wednesday night, we talked, we talked about God condescending to His creation on Wednesday. Now, that term means how God interacts with His creation. And the greatest act of His condescending nature is when Jesus Christ was born. Emmanuel. God with us. And that is the good news that is for all people. And thirdly, as not only was this news of Christ's birth something to rejoice because it was a promise fulfilled, but it was good news for everybody. But it was good news because a Savior had come. A Savior had come. Now, we can understand the plight of the Jews in the need for a Savior, a Messiah, who would come and right that wrong and reestablish that which was lost. But they missed it. They missed who Jesus really was. They missed the fact that they needed a Savior for their sins, not a Savior from the Roman government. Jesus is not our Savior from government. Jesus is not our Savior from oppression. Jesus is not our Savior from persecution. Jesus is our Savior from our sins and our unrighteousness. And they missed it. You know, Many people today don't feel they need a Savior. Before I was saved, I didn't think I needed a Savior. Because I didn't really know who I really was in light of my Savior. 
I didn't really think I was a sinner. I had been to church. I had been baptized twice. Not that it didn't take. There was complications at birth. Then I was baptized a third time here. That's the one that counted. I didn't think I needed to save me. I was good to go. I was going to church. I was an altar boy. I was getting altar boy weekly. I was good to go. That's what I was told. I didn't know I needed a Savior. Until the day God revealed who I was in relationship to Him, a sinner lost in his sin in need of redemption. And I went to my knees, weeping and crying out to God, have mercy on me, have mercy upon me, a sinner. Lord, please forgive me for my sins and unrighteousness. I didn't know I needed a Savior until a Savior revealed Himself to me. Listen to what Paul says in Colossians 1, 19-21. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. You know, many people today don't have joy, like Jason and Allie spoke about. They try to find it in many places. And it always ends the same. It's the same old story. Temporal happiness that doesn't last from pleasures, which most of which are sins. And their sins continue to maintain the separation that they have from the Father. But they don't see that. They don't understand it. They don't recognize it. They don't see a need for the Savior. They think they're good. I live a good life. I do good things. I don't hurt people. I have good will in my heart. And yet what they don't understand is that a life separate of Christ is enmity with God. Is enmity with God. And people don't see it that way. They, they placed in their mind that God is a loving God and He will accept me regardless of who I am, regardless of what I do. How can a loving God condemn me when I'm a good person, and yet they don't know that their life is actually hatred and hostility towards God. You see, when I was saved, I wept. I wept because I realized that's exactly who I was. And all the good that I thought I had went right out the window. It didn't measure for anything. And I wept because I knew that I was an enemy of God and that my sin was an affront to Him. And see, a lot of people don't realize that. 
People don't think that their sin is something in relationship to God. They think their sin is between you and themselves. They either sin against themselves or they sin against somebody else. They don't realize that their accountability is with God. Why? Because God is all supreme. He created you. He holds the balance of, his life, of your life in the palm of His hand. You are accountable to God first and foremost. Listen to what David said in Psalms 51. Against you and you alone I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. David knew he was accountable to the Most High God, and so are we. But people don't make that connection. They think their sin is just contained within their life circle. But it is against God that you're sinning, first and foremost, because He's all supreme. Your actions are not independent of God, but are directly related to God and fall under His accountability for whom you will be judged. We answer to Him first. Everyone answers to Him, whether they recognize it or not. This is why we need a Savior. We need to be saved from our sin and our unrighteousness and the separation that we have and cause because of our sin. We need to be reconciled with the Father. We need to be forgiven of our sins. We need to be redeemed by this Savior that the promise fulfilled. And I tell you, when you think about the fact that He chose you, I was walking along in my life, minding my own business, sinning my own way, <laughs> and God reached down and plucked me from the muck and the mire of my sin and revealed His Son, Jesus Christ, to me in an intimate way, in a personal way, in a convicting way. He chose me. He chose you. Now, is that not something to rejoice in? Because He could have chose someone else. He could have walked right over you. But he chose you. It blows me away when I sit privately in my own study and I think about how the Lord did that. And I'm overwhelmed. Especially when I pray for those who are lost and they've yet to be saved. Lord, why are they not saved? Who was I for you to take notice of? Who am I that you would see fit to extend your mercy and your grace? Not only does that give us a thankful heart, but Lord, it makes us rejoice that we're His. And we're right there forever. Finally, the birth of Jesus brought forth a cause and occasion for joy because he came as God, and that's important for us to understand. The Messiah did not simply come as a prophet, like John the Baptist, or Isaiah, or Jeremiah. He didn't just simply come as a teacher. 
He didn't simply come as a man, but he came as God himself, Emmanuel, God with us. And we get this not only from Matthew chapter 1, verse 23, but from how Luke identifies Jesus in our text. When we look at Christ the Lord, the combination of these words, which means anointed Christos, the Messiah, but also the Lord, which means God in the context of this text. The Messiah. God, the Messiah. So we can derive from both of these words and meanings that is Christ the Lord is Christ the Lord God. And that is why he is Emmanuel. And that is why he is with us. To further show this, we see that during the time of Jesus' ministry, the term Lord was a term of respect, such as they would give to a teacher or to a rabbi. In fact, in Matthew chapter 8, verse 12, 8 through 12, remember when Jesus said, come and follow me, and one of the disciples says, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. That word Lord in that context was one of respect. However, after the resurrection, the term Lord was now being linked to his deity due to the witnessing of his power of his resurrection and his ascension. And all he said had transpired. For example, the disciple Thomas, when Jesus was revealing himself to him, he said, my Lord and my God. The expression took on Christ's deity as much as it did his lordship. Now this was just not a shift in Jesus' deity or, or his lordship, but they finally recognized who he really was, the Lord God. And Jesus had said this many times. In John chapter 10, verse 30, I am, I and the Father are one. That got him in a little trouble. They were picking up rocks after that one. How about John 8, 58, when he said, I am. Okay, what's the significance of that? Well, in Exodus 3, 14, God said and called himself, I am. Again, when Jesus said, I am, he's relating himself to God in a direct manner. And again, they picked up rocks on that one as well. Now, why is this important that Jesus came as God? Why was it important that he condescended to the earth? Well, we can first find our answer in Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, verse 21. Kind of an interesting little verse. And the Lord God made Adam, for Adam and for his wife Eve, garments of skins and clothed them. Now, that's interesting. We know the story, right? Adam and Eve. Eve was deceived, and Adam ate of the forbidden fruit. And their eyes were opened, and sin entered into the world and corrupted everything. As a result, they seen that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made for themselves loins. It's important to understand that. Why? Because they were naked. But why would they care if they were naked? Because, a sin of, because as sin corrupted everything, it also corrupted their innocence. And as a result, their nakedness revealed the guilt of their sin. 
Then comes God looking for Adam and Eve. And when he finds them and they confess what they had done and he admonishes them and he gives them the ramifications of their actions, but then what does he do? He replaces the sown sig leaves and the loins that they had created and he makes garments of skins of animals. This was the evidence of the first sacrifice for the sin of man. And from that time forward, God required a sacrifice to atone for the sins of man, to cover up their guilt. This continues all throughout the Old Testament. Remember Abraham who was called to sacrifice his son and test his faith and was about to do just that when God stopped him and said, don't, and provided a ram to replace his son Isaac. And they called that place Yahweh, Eha, which means God will provide. That's important for us to understand because God will provide a substitute. He will provide a sacrifice for our sins. And we know who that is. Then in Levitical law, we see that it commanded that once a year, a high priest would enter into the holies of holies after sacrificing a bull for himself and a goat for the people. And he would sprinkle blood on the cover of the ark, which is called the mercy seat. And it's a guilt offering for the sin of the people. And symbolically, what that, what that sprinkling of blood on the mercy seat was is so when God looked upon his people, he would not see their sin because of the sprinkled blood. And like I said, this was symbolic. It was, temp it was temporal. It was done every year. And when Christ was sacrificed by way of being a perfect sacrifice, the Lamb of God who took away the sin of the world without spot or blemish, and He was sacrificed by way of His crucifixion, and we read that He split the veil of the holies of holies so that He entered in as the high priest, a perfect priest, a sinless priest, to sprinkle the altar with his own shed blood once and for all so that we would not suffer the judgment of man, but we would suffer the judgment of the mercy seat, the bema seat of Christ. Our sin had been paid for. We had been redeemed. We are now reconciled with the Father because of the sacrifice of Christ. All this because God had ordained the sacrifice would be used for the atonement of sin from the very beginning in the Old Testament. Listen to what Leviticus 17.11 says. This is the law. It says this, For the life of flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. We say that every communion Sunday, for there is no forgiveness of sins without shed blood. That's where it comes from. God not only established it in Genesis chapter 3, but he, he put it in his law that had to be fulfilled. And Christ fulfilled it fully and completely. And this should give us great joy that Christ came. He sacrificed himself. He propitiated the very wrath that we deserve. And that our judgment is before the bema seat of Christ and not the judgment of man. 
and that we will be with him eternally, forever, with an inheritance that's incorruptible. That's what we received from our Messiah. That's what we received from Christ our Savior. Brothers, without him coming, we wouldn't be redeemed. And this is why it's good news. Of great joy, Christ had come. The Messiah brought salvation. A Savior who was God. Therefore, let us rejoice in this, because our salvation is because of Him and Him only. In closing, I think Paul can sum it up very well from Romans chapter 5, verse 2. Romans chapter 5, verse 2, when he says, Through him we have also obtained access by faith into his grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Brothers and sisters, we are in the Advent season, not only celebrating that he had come, but that he's coming again. And praise be to the Lord our God that he sacrificed for you and me, which gives us great joy, and that we are to walk in this joy every day. As Jason and Allie said, sometimes the world closes in and we lose our joy. Never lose the joy of your salvation because that transcends every trial, every tribulation, every difficulty, everything that the world is doing. Your joy of the salvation of Christ transcends all of that. Let us never forget that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it speaks truth and reaffirms, Father, the promises and gives us great joy. Father, let us leave here today with that joy in our heart that you came as you said you would and you did what you said you'd do. And as a result, we are redeemed. We are reconciled. We are presented faultless before the Father with exceeding joy. Oh, Lord, let us rejoice in that every day. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.